Well, thank you to our musicians uh, under Audra's leadership. Very much appreciate them, appreciate her and uh, the time and effort that she puts into leading and guiding our, our music ministry. Um, well done. Thank you. Well, let me pray for us this morning before we get into this passage, all right? God, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for the clarity that you give us. We're thankful for the redemption that we have through hearing your word and responding in faith. And I pray this morning that you would give us um, wisdom and guidance as we, as we study this passage and reflect on just your love for your bride, the church. Thank you for our time together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, you can open to Ephesians 5 if you're not there. It's very, uh, very common among Christians today to talk about how marriage is under attack in our culture. And I am not here to dispute that this morning. The cultural soup that we exist in shapes us and forms our perception of things like marriage. And as we even talked this morning in the Bible Institute class on politics, the laws that we have shape us as well. They form our understanding of what is good and what is right. They don't make us good or right, but they certainly shape how we think about good and right. And so in our culture here in America today, in this time and place, we as the church, as individual Christians, face unique challenges to marriage with the no-fault divorce laws that have existed for 50 or 60 years, and then certainly over the last five years from so-called same-sex marriage. Our understanding of marriage culturally has adjusted quite a bit over the last couple of generations. And so I'll certainly say and, and be clear that marriage is under attack in unique ways in our time in our culture today, but marriage is something that has always been under attack. I think that's because it's, it's so unique in God's plans. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, which you don't have to turn there, you go back to the story of Satan's temptation of Eve, the very first sin that entered into the world, one of Satan's tactics was to undermine the creational order that God had put into place. And he undermined the responsibility of Adam as the covenant head. And he went after Eve. And you can even read in Genesis 3 and verse 6, right in the middle of the temptation, as Eve is pondering, eating the fruit, Adam is standing there passive as an onlooker. And he does nothing about what is going on. He doesn't exercise any authority or leadership or responsibility and he doesn't dispatch of the serpent, which is what he should have done, because God gave him the command to protect and to keep the garden. Now, of course, once the first couple had eaten the fruit, you see immediately that the harmony between them that was described in Genesis 2, when they're first married and brought together, that harmony is immediately disrupted. And they're blaming each other, and they're hiding, and they're trying to cover themselves in shame. And then as you read on in Genesis chapter 3, you get to 
the curses that God lays down, and he even says, as a result of what you have done, the married relationship is going to be more difficult. Genesis 3.16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And Adam's place as covenant head wasn't defined here. It was given in creation, but certainly the relationship is going to be disrupted and difficult in marriage now. And amazingly enough, in the midst of this in Genesis chapter 3, and God explaining the damage that had been done to the married relationship between the husband and wife, he promises that through their married relationship and through the intimate connection that they have and the union that they have together, a child will ultimately be the result that will undo the work of the serpent. And he will set things right. And that includes the marriage relationship. Now, of course, as you read through the story of Scripture, that child has come, and through that child's death and resurrection, the head of the serpent has been crushed, and we have been united to him, joined to him, as we've seen in Ephesians, and now, because of our union with him, all of our lives, everything that we are and everything that we have takes on a new shape and a new form. We're to put off the old and put on the new. And so now there's a new habit of living. There's a new walk. There's a new pattern of living that is the result. And that pattern of living matches our calling in Christ. And we live differently. We're citizens of a new kingdom. And we demonstrate the grace that we've received through Christ by by how we live out that new identity. And so we display that restoration and that putting things right through the work of Christ in every area of life, but certainly that includes the marriage relationship. And in fact, I would say it's one of the more significant areas where the work of Christ puts things right and sets us on a trajectory to where it should be. And so beginning in Ephesians 4, leading up to where we're at in Ephesians 5, we've been looking at what it means to walk worthy, suitably of our calling, and we've seen all of these different areas. We're to walk suitably to our calling in unity, in holiness, in love, in light, and in wisdom. And so last week we started looking at this walk of wisdom. So you can look with me at Ephesians 5, verse 15. This is where it began, and our passage today is a part of this exhortation to walk in wisdom. But look at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And here's the results of being filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Another result, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the third result, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The basics of walking in wisdom are given here, and one of those basics is to be filled with the Spirit, and a result of being filled with the Spirit is submitting to one another. And what Paul means by submitting to one another, he's going to explain in verses 22 all the way to chapter 6 and verse 9. 
And so what he means by this is you submit to one another by obeying and aligning yourself with the God-ordained role that you have in these particular relationships, whether it's marriage or parenting or the workplace. And so what he's doing here in verses 22 to 33 is Paul is explaining the impact of new life in Christ on the marriage relationship. And so I want to give you today and next week three guidelines for walking in wisdom in your marriage. And you can see both of them up there that we're going to cover today. But we'll start in verses 22 to 24. Wives, follow your husband's loving leadership by imitating the church's example. It's a longer point than we normally have, but I felt like it was important to get all of that in there. So wives, follow your husband's loving leadership by imitating the church's example. Now, as we get into these instructions, and there's no doubt they are instructions, they're commands, I want to make something absolutely clear about the whole of this passage the commands in this section are built on the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're rooted in the gospel. The the work of Christ and his love for his bride, the church, forms the backdrop of these commands. It forms the foundation of our marriages and how we live and exist together. And so you can't really understand these instructions and you can't put them into practice well if you rip them away from Jesus and the church. And if you sort of think of these commands in isolation on their own and don't constantly connect them back to the love of Christ for his bride and the way the bride follows Christ and his leadership. And so Paul's intention in this passage is to give us instructions on marriage. But his bigger intention here is that you and I would be so captured by the sacrificial love of Christ for his church and the way the church responds to Christ that we would long to imitate that pattern in our own lives and in our own relationships. He wants us to walk in wisdom as responding to the love that Christ has demonstrated. And so, God has designed marriage to work in certain ways. And the work of Christ begins to put back together what sin has disrupted and torn apart. And that restoration is what Paul is giving us here, and it's modeled after Christ and the church. So look at verse 22. He begins with instructions for wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Now, This command to submit here makes people uncomfortable at times, and if I'm honest, it makes me a little uncomfortable too at times. And there's a reason for that in my own life. I don't know what it is for you. For me, I think it's because I have seen this command and this aspect of marriage abused by husbands regularly and frequently. I've seen husbands take this and use it as a club to demand obedience from their wives. And I've seen guys who are self-centered ogres who dominate and belittle their wives and then try to find a biblical basis for it in this command. 
and in Paul's words here. And you'll notice here, it should be obvious, that this is a command given to wives. It's directed to them. And so what Paul is describing and what he's asking for and and telling wives to do here is to graciously and freely allow their husbands to be the leader in the relationship. It's a command directed to them. Now, what are some things this is not doing that sometimes people sort of slip in here? This is not calling every woman to submit to every man in every relationship. This is very clearly defined within the marriage relationship. This is not saying that women can't work outside the home. This is not saying that only men can hold positions of authority in the workplace and that we should never have a woman CEO or a woman president. That's not what this is doing. Paul is not telling husbands to demand submission of their wives. It's not directed to husbands. You'll see what the command is for husbands, and we will spend the bulk of our time there because that's where Paul spends the bulk of his time for a particular reason. But what he's doing here is he's commanding and he's telling wives to walk in wisdom by properly reflecting God's design for marriage and allowing their husbands to set the tone in the home and to be the initiating leader, the authority. And you'll notice at the end of verse 22, this is all because of their relationship with the Lord. Look at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Why do they do this? Why do they follow the structure that's given here? Why do they follow the lead of their husbands? Because they recognize that God has ordained this structure in the home And he has given the husband the primary responsibility for leadership. And so as they submit to the Lord and walk in wisdom, this is how they operate. This is how you operate. And this structure, this command is not made up out of thin air. Paul's not just randomly coming up with this because he's a chauvinist. He explains why this is true in verse 23. For... The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. This structure in the home with the husband as the head is modeled after Christ and the church. And in that model, Christ is the head. Now, what does it mean here that the husband is the head? Well, it's quite easy to read cultural stereotypes into this. If you're a little bit older, you may naturally think that Paul is describing 1950s America, middle America, where the home is the castle of the man, and he comes home, and the wife and the kids are basically there to serve him. That's not what this is describing at all. That's not what it means for the husband to be the head. But it is true that this does work itself out in different cultures in different ways. And so we need wisdom to apply this to marriage and to work this out in our individual marriages. But in order to be biblical here, we have to understand what Christ's leadership of the church looks like. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But for now, it's enough to recognize that this is a command given to wives. And he explains that again in verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ... So also wives should submit in everything to their husband. Paul's not setting up a hierarchy of importance. 
He spent the entire book of Ephesians describing how we are all one in Christ, Jew and Gentile, different relationships. We're all of equal value under Christ, and he's not undoing that now. But what he is saying here is that God has given a structure of leadership and authority within the home, and that wives have a responsibility to recognize that structure and follow it. Now he turns to husbands. And he gives the bulk of the passage to them. And you can see the second guideline for walking in wisdom in your marriage to husbands. Husbands, love your wives by imitating Christ's loving sacrifice. And this is in verses 25 to 27. So he's made it clear in verses 22 to 24 that husbands are the head. And he's commanded wives to follow their leadership, their headship, to recognize this structure in the home. Husbands hold the primary leading responsibility. Some people think that means that husbands are, they boil that down to decision makers. And so they decide where to go out to eat and they decide all the other decisions in the home. They bark out commands and control every detail. But that's not what he's describing here. Husbands, as the lead, have to take primary responsibility and model their leadership. They're the starting point and they model their leadership after Christ and his leadership of the church. So what does Christ's leadership of the church look like? Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So what's the husband's role in the home? How does he reflect Christ's headship? How does he lead in the home. He leads in the home by sacrificing himself for the good of his wife and his family. He sets the tone by initiating self-sacrifice. So to love someone, we've talked about this over and over again, I feel like, but to love someone is to have that person's best interest in mind. Not just to give them whatever they want, but to have their best interest in mind, to know what is best for them. And so Christ loves the church in that way. And what's amazing about Christ is that he has all the authority in the universe and he exercises that authority in a particular way. Flip back to Ephesians 1 and I want to show you this. This is what the the marriage relationship is modeled after, after this type of headship and leadership. You can start in verse 21, Ephesians 1. This is describing Christ here. He's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So he's got all authority in the universe. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. He's head over all things to the church. What does that mean? He exercises his authority for the benefit and the good of his bride, the church. And so he gives up of himself for her. And what does that work look like? Well, Christ's sacrificial love and leadership of the church extends from eternity past all the way to when we will be with him forever in the future. Look at verses 25 to 27. I'm going to read this whole thing, and you can see 
the scope of this, going backwards to him loving the church, to him giving himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, in other words, set her apart, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that in the future he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. He uses his astounding authority for the benefit and the good of his bride. He loves her. He dies for her. He sets her apart for himself and he makes her holy and brings her to himself in the future forever for complete freedom from sin. Now here, Paul's not telling husbands that we're responsible to sanctify our wives, that we can somehow do the work of sanctification in their hearts. But what he is telling us is that we model this type of broad scope of sacrificial love and leadership, and he's showing us the incredible lengths that the love of Christ goes to for the benefit of his bride. So guys... What this means for us is that you and I lead in our homes by demonstrating what sacrificial love looks like. If you think headship means that you get whatever you want all the time and you treat your family like slaves, then you don't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not often how we think about leadership. We get worldly leadership in mind when we think about leadership. Loving sacrifice is not what we often think about, but this is exactly what it looks like in the home. Biblically speaking, leading means giving up of yourself and using your leadership to model sacrifice and pursue the right things in your home, setting the tone and setting the example. So I want to try to clarify this a little bit for the guys here. And the reason I'm focusing so much on the guys is because Paul does here, The bulk of this is written to men, and because if guys can get this right and pursue this, then everything else falls into place in a lot of ways in the home. The bulk of the responsibility lies on us. And so one of the great temptations for men is to be passive. And I think you see that with Adam, right? I mean, what was Adam doing? He was just sort of hanging out there watching this whole conversation go on between Eve and the serpent, and he didn't step in, and he didn't lead. And he didn't take responsibility. And so it's very easy for us as men to sort of be passive in our relationship with our wives and in our parenting. I mean, it's, it's easy to sort of back off and let your wife do the bulk of the parenting work. Let her be the one who initiates regarding spiritual things. It's easy to sort of take a back seat. You come home from work, you're tired, you plop down on the couch in front of the television or the computer or the video game system, if you're inclined that way. You immerse yourself in your hobbies. You assume, if you have kids, that the kids are ultimately her responsibility and you act accordingly. I always cringe when dads talk about babysitting their own kids. They're, they're your kids. Like, you're not babysitting. You're a responsible parent. 
You and I, husbands, we are called to be the loving, sacrificial leaders in the home. And so what does leadership look like in the home regarding your wife? There's a definition of spiritual leadership that I've always found very, very helpful. And I'm going to share this with you this morning and sort of walk you through it. John Piper's the one who gives it. I define spiritual leadership as knowing where God wants people to be, taking the initiative to use God's methods to get them there in reliance on God's power. It's very helpful to me. I go back to it regularly, whether it's in pastoral leadership at church or in my home. And I'd break this down into four parts, and maybe this will be helpful to you, but I've highlighted those. Knowing, taking, using, and relying. This is, these make up the parts of spiritual leadership And so for guys to exercise spiritual leadership in their homes, they give up their own rights and they use their leadership and authority for this purpose. First of all, to be the leader and the head in your home means you know what marriage should look like. You know what the home should look like. What is God's design for marriage? What is a healthy marriage relationship? Leadership requires knowing the destination. It requires knowing the specifics of where you should be and where your wife should be and where your kids should be or your grandchildren. Requires that you know that. What is God's best for my family? And so what do you do if you're sitting there this morning and you're going, I don't know. I don't know what this looks like. I've never thought about it that way before. Talk through this with someone. Talk through it with an elder. Talk through it with your wife. Read a book on marriage. I've got tons of recommendations. But you have to know the destination. You have to know what it looks like in your family to pursue the Lord and where you should be and where God wants you to be. So you know where God wants people to be. And then secondly, you take the initiative. You get off the couch and you get active. And you plan, you design a plan, you literally sit down and write out a plan for what this looks like. This is leadership in the home. This is modeling Christ giving up his own rights and desires and wants for the good of his wife, the bride, the church. And so for for me, this looks like, I don't do it particularly well, but sitting down with our calendars and thinking through what's going to happen this week, this month. What are our goals for the kids? What are my goals for Bethany and I? When was the last time we had a date night where we could go out and just talk? And I don't just count on her to do all of that. I have to take the initiative to show that this is important and to lead in this. And I sacrifice my own laziness and passivity in order to initiate in the marriage relationship. Third, you use God's methods. Right? You model leadership after Christ. You don't coerce. You don't force. You don't demand. You don't dominate. You don't belittle. You graciously, humbly take the lead and set the tone. Christ's leadership of the church is filled with mercy and grace. It's never sarcastic. It's never rude. It's never coercive. It's strong, and it's directed, 
and it's filled with humble love and affection. And finally, we rely on God's power. Sacrificial leadership that is modeled after Christ and the church is not something that a sinful human being can do on his own. Honestly, neither is the type of submission that Paul is talking about here either. It requires a constant connection to God's strength through the Holy Spirit. So as we initiate, as we use God's method, as we know where we need to go as a family, we rely on God's power to do the work in our hearts. And so I think when husbands take the lead and initiate and are no longer passive along these lines, it becomes that much easier for wives to follow. Now these commands certainly fit together, but they're not They're not isolated from one another. Wives are commanded to submit even if the husbands aren't perfect. And husbands are commanded to lead even if the wife is not perfect. But both of these things work that much easier and more seamlessly when you're both committed to Paul's instructions here. Now, as I say that, I want to guard against something that you could very easily and I can very easily fall into when we talk about these roles in marriage, okay? It's very easy to hear teaching on marriage and the commands that are given and to think that if I'll just obey these roles and if the wife will just submit and the husband will just lead, that everything will be perfect and it'll, it'll fit. It, it probably will roll along seam, more seamlessly. It'll probably go better. It'll certainly fulfill God's design better. But the real problem in marriage is not ultimately dependent on these roles. This takes us back to our our model here of Christ and the church, and the baseline and the underlying motivation here for obeying these commands in marriage. Paul gives us these commands, but this entire passage is filled with talk about Christ and the church. It's filled with the gospel. It's filled with Christ's love for the church and the church's response to his loving leadership. And so obedience to these commands regarding roles won't take place without a deep and a full commitment to understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ at every level in our lives. And so Paul's primary concern here and the starting point for you and I, the starting point is beyond these roles, and it's to go back and examine and look at and be enthralled with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Read over the book of Ephesians again and go, how has Christ loved the church? How does this describe his relationship with the church? And then as I begin to see that, then I I model my relationship after that. Now, of course, we need wisdom to figure out the details, but that wisdom comes to us as we are committed to the underlying story of Christ and his work on behalf of the church and his love for us. And so the best marriage advice I can give you this morning, I think, is rooted in this text, and it's that you should spend your time plumbing the depths of what Christ has done. Think about his covenantal love for his bride Think about the scope of that love from his affection and his election in eternity past to his work on the cross, 
to his setting the church apart in holiness, to the future when she will be with him forever, and ponder that scope of covenantal love and think about that, and then think about how the church responds to Christ and look at that relationship and that reality and let that vision so capture you that these roles begin to make sense and they begin to be desirable and you want them. Because you want your marriage relationship to model Christ's relationship with his bride. You want to imitate him. And you're not concerned with how the culture views the Christian understanding of marriage anymore. You're more concerned with Christ and with his love for his bride. That's that's what I think Paul's going after here. And that's where we need to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. And we thank you for sending the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his love for us as his bride, as the church, his setting us apart, his sacrificial leadership of us. And we want to respond in obedience to him, in following his authority, in being so taken up with his love for us that we want to imitate these these commands here. We want to follow these these instructions that Paul gives us. And so I pray that you would work in our hearts. This only happens by the filling of the Spirit and by the control of the Spirit, and that's what we need, Lord. Thank you for your love for us. In Christ's name we pray.